Okay, so um, you can see Adam up on your uh, screen up there. And so, yeah, welcome, Adam. Thank you very, very much for organising and um, accepting to come and talk to us via Zoom uh, at our Rural Health CME uh, workshop. There is 20 people in the room uh, and they are from all over New Zealand and they work as rural hospital doctors, GPs or both mm-hmm. uh, in a variety of uh, localities. Uh, including the Chatham Islands. So um, welcome, and I'll hand over to you, and um, the floor is yours. Great. Thank you, Lucinda, for having me in the invitation. Kia ora, everybody. Um, it's always fun to, to come and speak to venues like this, because I find that some it's possible we may have spoken, someone in the audience may have spoken with me, if it's possible we may not have, but um, I do uh, pretty much all of the call. I'm the director at the National Poison Center, which is based in Dunedin. It's part of the University of Otago. It's been down here since 1964, and I have been in my role since 2017, so I've just crossed over five years um, with the Poison Center. And the talk today um, is going to be really covering um, some basic concepts and talks, uh, introducing some, you guys more to what we do at the Poison Center a little bit, and also some pearls, because you had sent out um, some questions and a lot of responses came through, which would all in themselves be an hour talk <laughs> if we wanted them to be. But I tried to touch on on the questions that were received, at least on a slide um, at, at, towards the end here. So we're going to go through all of those things um, and hopefully still have some time for some questions at the end. So like I said, I just wanna give you guys some real key concepts underpinning um, clinical toxicology and discuss an approach to risk assessing any exposure talk about how the poison center and clinical toxicologists like myself kind of fit in there for support for you guys in your roles because you know my our reach at the poison center we cover the whole country um and also again those pearls from questions so just a quick question to start things off so what do these patients have in common a two-year-old girl with bloody vomiting a 15-year-old boy with fever delirium and dilated pupils a 33-year-old depressed woman who's in cardiac arrest a 45-year-old chrome plater who has recurring nosebleeds, a 52-year-old woman with seizures after a gas release, a 61-year-old man with blue-green vomit and a bright red rash, and an 82-year-old woman with dizziness and trouble breathing. Well, rhetorical question, but the answer is they've all been poisoned, right? Poisoning is very, very um, heterogeneous in, in, in its clinical presentations. Um, I always like to say, kind of tongue-in-cheek, that any clinical presentation just about could be a poisoning. Um, and, and we'll talk about kind of why that is. But these are all patients I've cared for over the years, never all at the same time, um, but uh, but throughout the years I've covered these. And I, I should also mention, this is a good time I forgot. So so despite my, so my full-time role is at the Poison Center. Um, however, I also do some clinical shifts. I'm also an emergency medicine specialist. And so I do some shifts at Dunedin Hospital in the ED there as well. So, Clinical toxicology, or where I'm from in in, uh, North America, I'm from the States originally from California, I trained in North America, we call it medical toxicology, but it's an actual vocational scope there. So my training was initially in emergency medicine, and then I did two additional years of full-time training in clinical toxicology, um, and it's been a, a recognized subspecialty there for many years. So we have our own 
process of, of accreditation time and an examination process that doesn't exist in a formal way in Australasia, New Zealand or Australia. Um, there are some some paths that people can can educate themselves in toxicology over here, um, but there's not a board or any sort of organization that certifies somebody as a clinical toxicologist or not. Um, but the clinical subspecialty focuses on diagnosis management prevention of poisoning in all its forms. And so my, my training was quite broad in the sense it was bedside consultations, taking care of people with acute presentations in the ICU or ED or in their hospital stay, um, working at pediatric hospitals and adult hospitals. I trained in Atlanta where we had a full-time pediatric hospital as well. And then also um, part of my training with, with the Centers for Disease Control in the US where we had a national view um, doing epidemiology surveillance, uh, preparedness for uh, chemical and environmental hazards as well. So quite broad, we touch a lot of things. So the first concept I'd like to just introduce everybody to is that poisoning is not a really precise clinical term. It really just means harm from exposure to a substance. And those three terms, key terms there are harm, exposure, and substance. So harm is pretty simple, straightforward for all of us to understand. Injury, damage, disruption to tissues, cells, or organs. Exposure, though, can be either external to the body, it could be direct contact with epithelial surfaces, whether that's skin or mucosa, the GI tract, the eye, whatever, um, or it can be internal where, you know, substances are absorbed in the bloodstream, they get distributed to different tissue compartments, depending upon what their um, chemical identity is, they might be metabolized, um, they can go intracellular, extracellular spaces, and all of that will influence the impact they have on, on um, physiologic processes. So when we talk about exposures, we have to talk about different routes of exposure, which all makes sense, right? Ingestion, inhalation, eye, topical, mouth, but there's lots of different types of exposures. And then a substance is literally any chemical substance in any state of matter. So whether it's a gas, liquid, solid, um, and, and a, my, part of my training in particular was interesting because I, I got a lot of time to work on radiation. So even though radiation is not a chemical substance, it's a form of energy, um, that would be something that we could also potentially include as a toxin. And if you want to think about radiation as a toxin, it's probably the one we understand the best uh, almost out of any because radiation, um, while it's a nebulous and scary sort of topic for most people, is actually really well understood scientifically, including its health effects. We could talk about that another time if you'd like to as well. All right, so that was key concept number one. Key concept number two, all things. This is Paracelsus. Paracelsus is one of these prototypical 16th century physician, philosopher, scientist types. And he is credited with this statement that all things are poison and not without poison. Only the dose makes a thing, not a poison. And what that is, is really just a, a, a early sort of um, phrasing of a dose response relationship. Right. So you may have heard of people dying from water intoxication. What is water intoxication? Yeah. It's just too, drinking too much free water. You get hyponatremia and you can die from that. So that's water poisoning. Anything can be a poison. And so dose response curve at a low enough dose, there'll be no observed response or effect. But if the dose of this substance I'm going to show you uh, increases early on, you get increased attention and decreased fatigue. Then your heart rate can start to go up at a higher dose. You see some increased urination. Higher doses still, you start to see tremor and anxiety with increased blood pressure, then agitation, reduced control of fine movements, delirium, cardiac arrhythmias, finally seizure, hyperthermia, and death. So any ideas what this substance might be? 
my favorite one. Caffeine. Oh, shivers. Yeah, so you take enough coffee. I mean, you it, it would be hard to drink this much coffee, but if you got caffeine tablets and overdosed on caffeine tablets and had a high enough dose of caffeine, this is what you would see clinically, right? And so toxicology, clinical toxicology, we concern ourselves with knowing these sorts of effects. Um, the problem is, though, that you can't know this for everything because there are hundreds of thousands of substances that people come in contact with. Um, and so while we know a lot about many substances, there are some that we have very little information on as well. But just, just to prove the point that the dose makes the poison, right? In our pharmacology studies, right, thinking back to your medical school days, we learn about therapeutic index of medications. And so what that is, uh, a wide therapeutic index, is that there's not a whole lot of overlap between the useful, helpful effects and the harmful ones. So you have you know, for a dose, like, let's say an SSRI, something like fluoxetine. Um, fluoxetine has an effective dose for effects on uh, ameliorating effects of depression. Um, and then a toxic dose, this might be something like altered mental status. And so you need a much higher dose to start to see the effects of altered mental status versus where you start to see the, the beneficial effects of um, treating depression. But this goes for any substance and, and the effect um, you know, being a scientist, you want to isolate effects. So one might be um, tachycardia, one might be hyperreflexia. What, you know, you think about these all separately, even though we see them all um, kind of together. And so that's a wide therapeutic index. When we think about a narrow therapeutic index drug, we think about things like, I don't know, digoxin, colchicine. Um, those are drugs where the beneficial effects uh, and the harmful effects often overlap. And we see this all the time in the sense of just side effects, right? Side effects can happen um, and side effects could be in one way considered a toxic dose, right? Or a poisoning, even though we accept them because they're mild uh, potentially. With things like colchicine though, which is very important in, in the New Zealand context because you know there's a high prevalence of gout, there's a high prevalence of colchicine in the community, much to my chagrin because colchicine is a horrible poison. Um, it is something that cannot be treated effectively. There is no good treatment for it. And if you have a sufficient dose, um, it's basically a death sentence. And so we have these bottles out there with you know twist off tops that anyone can get into um, pretty easily with that contain 180 tablets of colchicine for a three month supply. Mm. And that's 90 milligrams. And if an adult ingests that, and I, I hear about several of these cases a year, um, we have multiple deaths a year across New Zealand from, you know, usually intentional, you know, ingestions, but these, it's only a matter of time really before some two-year-old gets into uncle's, you know, um, tablets. But anyway, coming back to the, the therapeutic index part of it, it's just the overlap of these two beneficial versus harmful effects. Um, so separating out what is a toxic sort of response or an injurious response from maybe a beneficial one. And then there's other substances like cyanide, which we'll talk about a little bit later, that of course we don't use therapeutically because there are no beneficial effects from that. Um, and so it's just the toxic response that we, that we care about. All right, so the third key concept here, performing a well-informed, and a well-informed is highlighted there because you gotta know uh, information about the substances a well-informed toxicity risk assessment is the most important thing for uh, basically starting management and dictates the optimal care setting. 
So let's walk through this. So how do you do a, a clinical toxicology risk assessment? So case-based example here, we've got a 45-year-old man who presents with an altered mental status. He's been depressed and dealing with chronic pain and talking uh, openly with his family about suicide. Family found empty pill bottles at home, uh, but they don't know what time he may have ingested or anything. So standard initial assessment, look at the ABCs, look at the vital signs, all of the vital signs, we would definitely wanna know all, all five major vital signs and the sixth one being the, the serum glucose or finger stick glucose. Beyond that, the specific elements that go into a toxicity risk assessment um, are include things like what is the substance? And when I say what is the substance, being as specific as possible, right? When it comes to medications, are they sustained release? Are they immediate release? When it comes to products that are, um, are on the market, you know, Genola has a wide variety of formulations. Um, and there are some products, um, I think there's a, a Mr. Plumber um, or some, some cleaning product um, that one version of it contains a quaternary ammonium compound, which is an irritant, but the next product next to it, same label, slightly different colors, contains sodium hydroxide with a pH of 14. And so that obviously has a very different risk profile to the quaternary mm. ammonium, which is just a GI irritant, whereas the <clears> other <throat> one is gonna cause severe GI corrosion if that's ingested. So being very specific about the substances is, is important, but oftentimes limiting. Um, when you think about gas exposures, um, you might not know the specific gas, but the dose about that is even harder. How do you quantify a dose of a gas exposure? Um, you know, that's, you can do that if you're a, a technical person and have um, controlled kind of uh, situation, but in real life, you know, quantifying carbon monoxide that's present in the air and the duration of time that the person is inhaling it, that's where it would ultimately give you a dose, but we can't do that. We can't quantify it. So we're always dealing with a lot of uncertainties in these factors, but trying to define them to the best of your ability helps inform the risk assessment. So dose, like we just pointed out with the key point number two is very important. Um, the time of exposure, really important for trying to prognosticate and think about when we might see effects. We often use time as a very useful indicator in tests. Um, when we would start to expect to see effects or when we can feel reassured that nothing bad is going to happen. Um, the circumstances and route of exposure, of course, in, inform everything as well. The circumstances are important because of the reason or also sometimes you can get information just based on where people are kind of found. If you have, you know, in the ED, you all have people come in sometimes after a party and if they're found down with substances around them, you know, that's more information you can get about what um, what might be involved. So the circumstances can definitely be important. Or if it's a if it's a worker at the, the port of Tauranga um, where they use a lot of methyl bromide or I know they're moving away from that soon. But, you know, if he went into a container and came out with some symptoms, OK, was there methyl bromide that was present there? Did they not ventilate the container long enough? Those are the kinds of things that we'll be thinking about. The reason for exposure is really important too. mostly, you know, around the self harm um, is a big red flag, obviously, because people with intentional self poisoning, um, you know, might be prone to take bigger doses or, or just, or might not be as forthcoming with the history. That's quite variable. It just depends on how cooperative the person is being with you. But, you know, obviously from, from my purposes as well, reason is a really important factor that we will need to refer people on. Um, even if they say that, you know, I ingest a, a silica gel packet, but I did it because I thought it would kill me, right? That's a very different sort of exposure to somebody that uh, the two-year-old that take, 
uh, eighth mm. gel packet. Um, and then obviously current exam findings, current symptoms, what are you seeing clinically? That's very important. Um, and in fact, usually when it comes to toxicity from drugs, you treat what you see um, because a lot of the factors are not going to be known to you. And so the current presentation of the patient is always very important for starting to direct some of your management. We'll talk a little bit about toxidromes in just a second. Other patient factors for, for of course, you know, background, age, weight, their past medical history, what their drug history is, what medications they normally take, all of those things are of course gonna come into, you know, our, our standard assessment for how, how robust is this person? Are they fragile medically? Are they not fragile? Um, and investigations, investigations are actually pretty simple. Um, blood glucose, an ECG, a serum paracetamol, especially for those intentional self-poisonings um, and other routine tests. Um, when it comes to specific drugs, there's very few that we can actually assay and measure directly. Um, that list is, is less than probably 10 or 15. Um, and extended drug tests take time to come back um, and often aren't very clinically useful anyway. And so you, that's where the, what do they look like right now um, becomes very important because we need to manage them because we're not gonna have um, potentially uh, information about what this substance is. And oftentimes it's not important because you can manage them clinically without that. So coming back to our case, um, our 45-year-old man, so his medications include MSLON, codeine, ibuprofen, and diazepam. He had a one-month supply that was dispensed three days ago. So we'll try to obtain the best uh, information about amounts and be specific with labels and ingredients because, um, again, what exactly are all these things? Do we know? Do we have the quantity? So key exam components, we already talked about the vital signs, the neurologic exam. My neurologic exam as a clinical toxicologist is pretty simple. I want to know generally about the mental status. And when I say generally, is it elevated or is it depressed or is it normal? Um, that's as simple as it, and it, you know, oftentimes descriptors like drowsy, lethargic, that doesn't mean as much to me. That's all just, they're CNS depressed. How much is their CNS depression um, is what I really care about. Uh, what's their pupil look like? Are they big? Are they small? Uh, what's the muscle tone generally and reflexes? All of that kind of feeds into these toxidrome kind of features we're going to talk about next. And then for a skin exam, it's pretty pretty straightforward. It's, it's more just looking, are they sweaty? Are they red and flushed? Or are they dry? So look for a toxidrome. A toxidrome is just toxic syndrome. So it's a constellation of signs and symptoms that are due to substance receptor interactions. And there's um, probably at least six really well described toxidromes. And I know this is a busy slide. I'll be happy to share the slides. This is being recorded, but, but just to run through them really briefly, um, sympathomimetic toxidrome. So this is the person that is high on meth. And if you've ever seen somebody like that, everything is turned up. Um, they're very psychomotor agitated. They might be talking a mile a minute. They won't stay still. Their blood pressure, heart rate, temperature, everything's up. Um, anticholinergic, this is one that has uh, kind of that helpful mnemonic, mad as a hatter, dry as a bone, hot as a hair, blind as a bat, full as a flask. Um, and so that refers to, again, this is all due to um, substances interacting with acetylcholine receptors that produce these kinds of things. So they're delirious because of central acetylcholine inhibition. They're anhydrotic, they can't sweat, that's why they're dry as a bone. And that's also why they become hyperthermic. That's because of blockade of acetylcholine at, at uh, sweat glands that 
are needed. You need acetylcholine innervation there to actually make sweat. Um, madriasis for pupillary dilation, and it's not accommodating to light, so they're blind as a bat. Um, and then urinary retention because uh, you can't micturate. Um, all of those things just due to drug interactions on receptors. Um, those people, if you've ever seen them clinically, that oftentimes they're interesting because they're the people that will, if they're in a delirium, they might be picking at things in the air. Um, that's the the uh, uh, datura T, as it's commonly called here. Um, if if you've ever seen somebody like that, or people that overdose on norphenadrine or lots of other anticholinergic medicines, they might look like that. Cholinergic is one that we don't see much clinically, um, and, and that's people that are very wet. So the, the mnemonic here is dumbbells. It's an important toxidrome, and if you're in a, uh, an environment where there maybe is a lot of agriculture, this is what people with cholinergic um, pesticide poisoning, so organophosphate or a, a carbamate poisoning can look like. Um, so the mnemonic is dumbbells, diarrhea, urination, meiosis, um, bradycardia, bronchorrhea. So a lot of really wet, a lot of secretions is what this person looks like. Um, and lacrimation, salivation, again, just more secretions. Um, and then the bradycardia and bronchorrhea are the things that are really dangerous with this toxidrome that can, can lead to death. But we don't see that one in New Zealand very much. Um, in other parts of the world uh, where pesticide poisoning, intentional pesticide poisoning is a, a leading cause of suicide, um, they see it all the time. And, and so places like Sri Lanka, where there used to be tens of thousands of cases a year, um, and, and they've done some good work to try and reduce that, but it's not one we're going to see much across New Zealand. Um, opioid toxicity, the opioid toxidrome, pretty classic triad, CNS depression, respiratory depression, meiosis. You got those three things. It might be something else, but you should definitely think about opioid toxicity. Maybe they're having a pontine stroke or, or, or hemorrhage or something like that that could also cause these kinds of findings. But opioid toxicity should be high on the list. For sedative hypnotic toxidrome, um, the, the, the person to think about is the person that's very, very drunk with alcohol and intoxicated to the point where they're passing out. Um, and so those people initially, maybe they're, they're agitated, but eventually they kind of just get sleepy and go to sleep. And they might be very sleepy where you can't wake them up in, in a significant coma even. But that's what sedative hypnotics are, will be like. And there's lots of substances, you know, benzodiazepines, barbiturates, um, other things like that that would fall into that category. And then lastly, serotonin toxicity, which is one that's actually kind of common across New Zealand, um, um, is interesting. We'll talk about that a little bit more uh, later on, but basically it's abnormal mental status uh, potentially with abnormal, abnormal vital signs and hyperreflexia is another really key hallmark of, of what this looks like. And there's a wide spectrum here. There's people that will be pretty normal with their mental status or very normal, maybe completely normal mental status with mild tachycardia and mild hyperreflexia versus the full-blown kind of hyperthermic, unstable, acutely sort of decompensating patient um, with the same. It's just a matter of dose and how much central serotonin is affecting the brain. So just, uh, I won't go through all these, but it's just the vital signs, the mental status, the skin findings, um, maybe more as a, um, a helpful tool for you guys uh, to go through, but just um, it sort of differentiates a little bit between some of them. The hard ones to differentiate between typically are gonna be sympathomimetic and anticholinergic. Those are both agitated people that have tachycardia, hyperthermia, and hypertension. Um, one of the key differentiating things is 
sympathomimetic people are sweaty generally, and the anticholinergic people are very dry. Now, that might be hard to assess when you have an agitated patient that you don't even want to get close to, but, um, but that's one of the distinguishing features. Um, sedative hypnotic and opioid toxidromes can look kind of similar as well. Um, and so the best differentiating feature there is a dose of naloxone, because if you give an opioid intoxicated person a dose of naloxone, you're going to reverse them. Um, mm. But if they have other things on board, maybe they won't fully reverse or something else is going on. Um, and unfortunately, often is the case, you, you get somebody that comes in and there's both opioids and other sedatives that are available to them. And so if they don't fully wake up or, or don't fully start breathing, it might be that the other medications are, is what's going on there. But those can be hard to kind of sort out sometimes too. So coming back to our case example, so we have the 45-year-old guy who's asleep in bed when you evaluate him. He wakes up briefly to answer questions and then just nods right back off to sleep. You can see what his eyes look like there and his vital signs. got a normal temperature and heart rate. Blood pressure looks okay, but his breathing is only six to eight times a minute. And his SATs on room air are 86% with a normal glucose. So those kind of, he's got CNS depression, he's got respiratory depression, and he's got meiosis. Looks like an opioid, toxidrome. Um, and he's sleepy. Could be sedative hypnotic. Remember, he's got MSLON, diazepam, other sort of sedatives available to him too. Just a couple of pitfalls to keep in mind when you're doing a risk assessment. Um, the first one is much more important for little kids. Um, they, they wouldn't have eaten that much. It doesn't taste good. Don't ever let, you know, unpalatability rule out toxicity. You still want to watch them for a while. Um, I've certainly had plenty of cases of kids that have gotten quite sick from ingesting something that would probably not taste very good. Um, but you can't let that make, you know, use your period of observation to watch them to make sure that it's time that rules them out rather than, ah, I don't think they would have had that much. Um, she seems fine at the moment. Current symptoms doesn't rule out developing symptoms. And so for a lot of things, it's all about absorption. And that's, again, why we typically will recommend a certain period of observation to allow full absorption to occur. Um, and if you have some knowledge of kinetics, you can sort of use that as a guide. Um, so if you know that a dose of drug X typically peaks four hours post-ingestion, well, then you're going to want to watch them for at least four hours, right, to make an assessment at that point what they look like. The one caveat there is that overdose um, is not studied and kinetics and overdose can be quite different than therapeutic doses. And obviously that only goes for therapeutic substances for chemicals and things like that. We have no idea how long it takes to repeat peak absorption after an ingestion. And so it's all just kind of ballpark made up. Let's watch them for a while. The, the most common sort of period of observation rule of thumb would be at least six hours should be pretty good for most things, but there are exceptions. And that comes to when, if you have something that's specifically a modified release like therapeutic, you know, those are in design so that they have prolonged absorption periods. And so for those types of agents, we'll recommend 18, 24 hours of observation. And there's a few bad players that we know about where we can have delayed severe consequences, even longer than 12 hours. Um, so that's where that informed risk assessment really comes in handy. The last pitfall is, ah, they didn't bring the product in with them. So again, products can appear very similar, but contain very different things. Um, and so that's why it's really important. If you can send somebody back to find the bottle, or obviously sometimes you can't, but the more information you know about the substance, the better the risk assessment's gonna be. Um, red flags, um, altered mental status, abnormal vital signs, 
access to high-risk substances. So, you know, you don't need to necessarily keep a, a list in your head of what high-risk substances are, but just be aware that high-risk substances obviously do exist. Um, and sometimes they can be a little bit surprising. You might not think something is a high-risk substance. Um, one, one example just of that, um, you know, there are different formulations of eye drops that contain um, uh, naphthazoline, which is a, a alpha-2 agonist and so that's similar to like clonidine and it can cause cns depression so kids drinking eye drops from a bottle can actually get pretty significant cns depression um, and so that's one that we'll recommend watching for a while to make sure that they're not developing that um, and there's lots of other examples of potentially and then self-harm behavior is obviously another red flag um, just because there's always that question of how forthcoming are there is the history more limited um, you know so you always want a period of observation for developing toxicity if there's a self-harm behavior that's involved um, should always check uh, my recommendation is to always check a paracetamol blood test because one i hear about at least a handful of cases every year where paracetamol is detected that was not part of the history um, and it's surprising. Now, in that's my practice, right? And I hear about lots of cases every year. It's not going to be your practice. And if you're going to play the odds, the odds are that it's probably not there. But unless you actually check, the problem with paracetamol is that it's clinically silent. And it's not until they develop maybe the next day some abdominal pain that they might represent um, and have abnormal LFTs. It takes 12 to 16 hours. It can take 12 to 16 hours for the ALT to start to go up. So if you're seeing somebody at hour six or eight post-ingestion and they have normal LFTs and you don't check the paracetamol, that doesn't rule out that they have a toxic dose or that they've taken a toxic dose. The only way to really rule it out early is with a paracetamol blood test. And because it's so common, um, because it's involved in a lot of my recommendation is always, hey, we at least got to consider. And if you have a good rapport with the patient, if you believe them, if you ask them specifically, did you take paracetamol? And they say no. Okay. Um, I would still send it off. But again, my practice environment is usually I'm in the ED where I can really get that easily. And I appreciate that if you're in a different environment, it might not be as accessible, but that's always something to think through. Can I just um, stop there, Adam, two seconds? So in this, like, how easily can you run in here, get a paracetamol level? Can you run get it easily? So most in the room can get it easily, and then there's a couple uh, who can't. They yeah. send away. Absolutely. So, so the things to think about it there is you're either going to believe them and, and go on that, or you can, if you have NAC available, you can just start them on it. Um, and those are decisions I'd always be happy to, to discuss those kinds of things too. I mean, certainly my experience is that the vast majority of the time, um, if somebody tells you they didn't, uh, or it's not part of the history, it's not going to be there. But like I said, I have at least a handful of cases every year where um, it comes up. And so there's no way to be absolutely certain unless you have that objective piece of information. Unfortunately, nothing else will rule it out. But, um, but I know that we live, we all live in the real world and have real constraints and have to practice there. Um, so, and then the last Can piece, I just quickly yeah. oh, ask you, um, how quickly is it detectable in the blood? Right away. I mean, right away. Yeah. Within and like, so say someone who's just taken, you know, a gram of paracetamol for their sore ankle. Yep. Is that going to be detectable as well? So just any Absolutely. level. 
Yeah, so uh, a therapeutic dose, you know, you'd expect a concentration maybe 120 or something like that. And most labs will report undetectable as less than 33. And so uh, a therapeutic dose will easily be detectable. Now, if you have a therapeutic dose and you're four hours out, you, it might be below the threshold. Um, but but that's that's fine because that's not a dose we're concerned about, right? It's those cases where you don't, there's no history and their paracetamol comes back and it's 1300 and you're like, oh, that's something we got to treat. Um, so, you know, those are the cases. Right. But again, it's that needle in the haystack. Um, but because there's nothing else you can use, that's why I just make the point there. And that's why it's always part of our recommendations to at least think through checking them. Is there, is there a point of care test for paracetamol? No, unfortunately no. not. Yeah. Um, Thank you. The last piece there, of, of course, just the psychiatric piece for, for intentional self-harm behaviors. Um, and I won't even start to go into that. That's not my scope of practice, but that's another reason why we also make referrals. When we're doing triage and people are at home, we always make a referral for, for at least that piece, even if it's not. Um, and it might be to whatever aspect of the system, but um, these are the reasons. Generally, if we hear about somebody that has a self-harm exposure, we are going to refer them in the first instance to the hospital because it's the best place to accomplish all three of these things. Um, if it's, you know, we're talking to somebody on the phone that's a healthcare practitioner, we can figure that out. But if it's just the patient, we're going to refer them to some sort of healthcare provider so that these kind of three things can be, um, and that's kind of independent, even if, even if the risk of the face value risk of the substance that they're telling us about is quite low um, for these different reasons. So where can I find good information to enhance my risk assessment? So that's the Poison Center. Um, this is our public facing website. This is how you call us 0800-764-766. It's available 24-7 to anybody that is within New Zealand. Um, and it doesn't matter. Uh, it's good to pass along to your patients and just be aware. If your phone doesn't have credit for it, it's a free phone number, so anybody can dial it no matter what, even if they don't have minutes on their on their plan. Um, and you get right through to one of our frontline guys who are my poisons information officers that are very capable of doing a risk assessment, helping triage that can provide information um, even to the healthcare professionals. However, if there's a consult that um, or a question that is sort of above their scope of practice, then we always have clinical toxicologists. It's usually me. It has been me for the last year and a half because I've been kind of alone. Um, but, uh, but I have a partner now, which is great, who just started last month. Um, and uh, we always have a clinical toxicologist available for consultation too. So just real briefly on the poison center. So the most familiar aspect is this telephone assessment and advice service. Um, we, can, we keep 75% of our callers at home um, and that's about 25,000 calls a year. Um, and then the other quarter are referred generally for some sort of medical assessment. Um, and then last year we did about 1500 1600 medical toxicology consultations um, and so that again can be anything um, whether it's the acute ingestion a chronic I, I often get calls um, which are very interesting about lead exposures or some of my favorite calls sometimes is do you think this could be tox um, that's often interesting cases to kind of talk through um, and always happy to do that kind of thing too um, and then the other activities we do is, you know, we produce and we maintain our toxins database. Um, uh, we do toxicovigilance, and which is surveillance of poisoning trends that we hear about. Um, we notify stakeholders and inform them across the government about trends in exposures we're seeing. They can come to us with interesting questions if they want data. 
um, whether it's related to poisoning prevention, medication safety, um, again, public health response, that kind of stuff. With the, um, you guys might remember, it was 2021, the, the um, Waikoaiti Keratane lead in the water um, issue. So I was involved in helping um, Public Health South at the time sort of think through the early, until they, they educated themselves really rapidly on, on lead, but the, those initial sort of few days um, before they could do a lot of their own homework on it, um, I think uh, they found it pretty helpful to be consulting with me about what do we need to be thinking about and that kind of stuff. Um, so we're always available for those kinds of things too. And if, if we don't know, if I don't know, or my colleague doesn't know, you know, we can sometimes at least point you in, maybe in a direction, um, but we're always happy to talk about any clinical scenario. This is toxins. Um, I don't know, hopefully some of you have used it before. We're, um, toxins is sort of, I like to think of it as the 50 year, you know, sort of collective knowledge of the poison center. And New Zealand, you know, back in the 60s, not having other ready access to information, um, had to build its own database of, of effects from poisons and substances. Um, so if you look up MS law on our, on our system, this is what you get. It's a pretty extensive document. Um, it's, it's, Kind of textbook like in a lot of areas, but you know, if you know it, once you learn how to navigate it, you can find what you need pretty quickly. Um, and there's always information about doses of concern, when people should be referred. And this is what my poisons information officers are using first line for making all of their triage decisions. Um, and if they want to deviate from what's on toxins at all, they need to get in touch with one of the clinical toxicologists. Um, and so this is something that my team is always working on. We edit. We're actually in the process, we're getting very close. It's been a very long um, project to replace sort of the software platform that builds this. And so we are gonna be launching, um, our, we just postponed our go live date from one September to one October. But once that's done, um, it's gonna be a new look, it's gonna be the same system, but the, the big thing is that it's gonna allow us to have better customer so, um, access, more of a, um, it's like a customer relationship system. We have a new one that's going to allow us to really make it more available. Um, so right now it's available through all DHBs and you should be able to, if you're on a DHB intranet system, just go to toxins.com and get access to the system. Um, it hasn't been as available for GP practices or people that aren't part of the DHB system, like the rural hospital system. But with our new kind of subscriber database, we're gonna be able to make that better. And so, um, and more accessible, it's, it's free. We make it freely available in New Zealand. We do commercialize it overseas, but we don't charge anybody within New Zealand for, for access to this because we're funded you know, by um, uh, a Ministry of Health contract. So, um, so yeah, so it's going to be soon more available. And if you'd like to get access to it, once we go live on our new system, you can send me an email. I've got it here at the end of, if you don't already have access to it, we'll figure out the new system is going to be much more robust um, for us to allow people to access it easily. Um, and it, it, it is a, it, it's a really good system. I'm sure mo everyone, is there anyone who doesn't use toxins here? Like, no, it's a great. So it sounds exciting to modernize it and bring it into the 21st yeah. century. It's 2003 tech, so it's quite dated. And that's why it's been, we've been working on it for four years. So <laughs> it's uh, going to be nice to have it done. Um, yeah, anyway, great. Um, all right, so just wrapping up our case. So we had a 45-year-old guy who's got an opioid toxidrome, CNS depression. Um, all his findings are consistent with his history. 
Um, we can try dose naloxone for his respiratory depression. He does have diazepam on board as well, so maybe he won't fully wake up, but we can give him something to hopefully keep him breathing enough so we don't need to intubate him. Um, one of the important things here, MSLON, that's a sustained release morphine. So because of that, we're going to want recommend a 12-hour observation period at minimum. Um, naloxone has a duration of effect of about 60 to 90 minutes, so it might wear off, and then they might have a recurrence of the toxicity. And so that's why they need to be watched very closely. Um, and then of course, check paracetamol concentration and then psych for the self-harm aspect. So that wraps up the case of the risk assessment. Um, any questions before I move on to kind of a few pearls from the questions that were received? Anyone got any questions? No, good to go, Adam. Thank you. All right. So yeah, like I said, I got a lot of different questions and I tried to address all of them to at least some degree. Any one of them could have been a whole talk into itself, but just kind of rolling through a few. So the one, uh, several questions were about antidotes, and I thought that would be a nice opportunity to let you guys know about um, an antidotes project that we've been engaged in for the last two years. So basically, um, we, we were fortunate enough to obtain a grant from the um, health lotteries um, Research Council, uh, and that has allowed us to, um, the aims of the project were one, to develop an antidote stocking guideline for hospital pharmacies, um, two, to sort of create and foster this antidote alliance, as I'm calling it, of stakeholders across the country, so that we can talk about these things and have a forum to, to push this forward. Um, and then the last piece of the, the project aims were, sorry, once this guideline's developed, um, to try and start to assess it. Now, with COVID, we, we did get pushed back a little bit in our timelines, but I'm happy to say we have developed the initial version of the guideline, and that just got finalized this month. Um, you know, the stakeholder engagement, obviously you can never engage with absolutely everybody, but we tried to be very broad. So we have engaged with, um, at the time the DHB still existed. So we engaged with every single DHB. We were talking to pharmacists and clinicians from all over the country. Um, you know, we, we definitely, we didn't hit every rural hospital, but we got um, definitely at least some rural hospital intake. We spoke to someone at Dunstan Hospital, and then, you know, we had uh, Gisbrin and Taupo and other people that were involved that we were just initially talking to them, what, what are the issues you guys have with antidotes? What do you hold? Why do you hold it? Learning all those kinds of things. And so we've learned a lot through the project. And, and one of the things that I just want to point out that's important for everyone to kind of think through is, you know, I think antidotes are like insurance, right? Um, and, and that's because you can't really predict when and where you're going to need to use them. And their access to them is timely, you know, especially for certain things. Um, and so having them on hand um, is really the best way because you can't always plan that uh, if this person shows up with exposure X that you're going to be able to send something to them in time. And so thinking through all those kinds of things, talking with the stakeholders, we've developed now what our, our kind of initial approach here is, our initial guideline. Um, I'll show that to you in just a second. But, but the, one of the issues we identified too is that um, there's a, a large gap in poisoning epidemiology, and that has to do with coding um, and, and, and other sorts of factors too. We don't have good systems to code all sorts of exposures. Um, and, and so, you know, you'd think, oh, let's just look at the epidemiology. That'll tell us what we need where. And 
Well, that's actually not probably the case because what's happening, I mean, it might give you some sense, but it also doesn't predict um, when the next case is going to walk through the door, um, where the next case is going to walk through the door. So that's why I think of antidotes like insurance. But when it comes to insurance, people have different levels of comfort, right? Some people want a lot of insurance and some people are comfortable with a little bit of insurance. And so trying to, we're not aiming to decide how people want to be insured, right? What we've done is develop a guideline that says, here are the potential threats, here are the antidotes that we have, here are the antidotes that we recommend to treat these things, and here's how much you would need to treat a, a person, our, our stereotypical person is a 100 kg person um, for a day or so. And so that's what we've done. Um, and it's a list that's gonna need to be updated as time goes on, but just to show you how what we've done. So this is our group A. Um, group A are things that need to be basically immediately available, um, whether that's in an ED or some other setting with minimal delay. And so those are things like acetylcysteine, uh, calcium, um, the cyanide antidotes, digoxin, which is a really tough one because that is very expensive. Um, the digoxin antibodies are $4,000 a vial. Um, and we've done a cost analysis of this. Half of the stocking cost is just the digoxin. Um, fab fragments, which is pretty crazy if, if you had everything on this list. Um, and so a few others, that's just group A. Um, group B is things that don't need to be necessarily immediately available, but should be available pretty quickly, you know, within an hour or two. We've, we've listed here on an hour, so within the hospital or some kind of nearby facility where people can get access to it rather quickly. Things on there, um, you know, uh, ethanol um, or fomepazole for toxic alcohols, which would be the preferred agent. Um, octreotide, dantrolene, things like that. And then we have group C on the next slide, which are things that need to be more regionally available. The timeliness here is available within eight to 12 hours. That's like your heavy metal chelators, um, botulinum antitoxin, things like that. So it's a small list. Um, these are also much rare kind of use items, um, but the timeliness isn't as important there. And we also have a group... Oh, go ahead. I'm intrigued how we've got snake and venomation. Yeah, um, no, it's it's a really interesting one. So so just so in case you're, you're not aware, um, Auckland DHB has forever held a, a vial of snake antivenom for those rogue snakes that somehow sneak their own country. Yeah. Um, and, and that's one of these questions about how do we want to be insured, right? Um, do we need to have a vial of snake antivenom? It doesn't actually cost that much. It's only a couple hundred dollars a vial, but like one vial would be like for the whole country <laughs> um, mm. because the threat vector. But but one of the other points from this project is that we need to, now with Te Ora, we need to identify what part of Te Ora is going to be taking this on as a champion um, for these sorts of decisions, right? And, and the whole mantra of Tefatora really fits good with this antidote question because it's centrally planned, right? Regionally delivered um, kind of, uh, or tailored and then delivered. Um, antidotes fall into this category and haven't gotten a lot of attention, I think, um, over the last several years. It's just been kind of places do what they have always done. They just restock what they have. But a lot of things that are on the shelves have just been there for historical reasons. Um, some places obviously do have done more curation than just that, but but we found many places that was the level of kind of curation going on. Um, I did have to, um, when I was working in Wairau, we had a catapo spider bite and 
we ended up ringing the poison center to find out where the anti-venom was and we actually found out we had it in our small rural hospital which so we got to use it um and i don't think they often actually get to use it uh no. and so yeah no 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 yeah and then we've also got this group d where things that we're not recommending that need to be stocked as essential and and catapult oh, yeah, there it is yeah catapult, we'd spot it and you know one of the things um because there's you know uh, essentially um while it is an anti-venom specific for for the venom of those spiders it's it's basically it's an analgesic agent um it's not something that's going to really have a um, outcome on mortality and things like that um so but that's why we put it in that group but if but again we're not saying that people shouldn't hold it we're just saying that we don't think it's essential that it needs to be held as an antidote um yeah along with those few other things uh, another question was about cyanide uh, baits and stuff. Um, and so when it comes to cyanide baits, very interesting, you know, the availability. So there's baits that are encapsulated um, and the risk from those would really be if, if ingested um, or, or bitten on. Uh, paste has a bit more of a risk because the um, handling it theoretically could expose somebody. But if it's a short, brief handling period um, or you're handling it with gloves, you know, if somebody touches it, they're not going to die from cyanide poisoning. You know, you'd have to slather it all over yourself and leave it all, leave it on there for a little while to probably absorb any significant amount. Um, so just those, the, it would still mainly be a risk, even paste if ingested. Um, but cyanide antidotes, you know, I know someone had mentioned in the email that they, they were, they forever held amyl nitrate and they've never used it. Um, well, you can let it go um, very happily. Amyl nitrate is not a recommended antidote. It's probably not going to be very effective if somebody has real significant cyanide toxicity anyway, um, because it's an inhaled kind of medicine. You're probably not going to get a substantial dose um, enough to kind of counteract a severe cyanide poisoning. So currently, the recommended cyanide antidotes are both intravenous, and that's hydroxycobalamin and sodium thiosulfate. Um, and so just to just to show so. The hydroxycobalamin we're talking about is cyanokit. It's a five gram dose. So this is not what we use for B12 supplementation where you're giving a milligram or two. Um, you know, you'd need 5,000 of those uh, one milligram vials to equal a, a five gram dose of cyanokit. So, um, you know, if people um, want to have specific questions about their context, you know, I'd be very happy to talk about that. But um, so this this cyanokit is unfortunately quite expensive too. I think it's about two to $3,000 um, of a vial. There's sodium thiosulfate, which is available. It's definitely cheaper, but it's not, uh, it might be a couple hundred dollars. Um, but again, it's IV. So it's not something that you're going to have available in, in the bush <laughs> um, and, and with people that are having exposures there. But if they're trappers out there, unless they're eating the, the cyanide baits, they should be a pretty, you know, um, it should be a pretty unusual. Low risk. Yeah, that's right. Good and reassurance. Then, yeah, and then antidote, the indications for giving an antidote for cyanide, it's clinical. Um, you need to have a history of a potentially toxic exposure, um, neuro findings like altered mental status or coma, hypotension, um, or some sort of cardiovascular um, insult and, and a metabolic acidosis. If those things are present, yeah, it's very reasonable to give a, a cyanide antidote. And it does, it does happen quickly. But, but the most likely cyanide exposure scenario I think that people are going to see is going to be house fires. 
smoke inhalation victims. Um, that's going to be the more like way more likely. And that's the only cases that I've, you know, been using um, recommending cyanide antidotes have been for smoke inhalation victims. I haven't had in the five years I've been here, I haven't had anybody that's had a paste or bait exposure that's been concerned. But, you know, if somebody does end up eating one of them, we'll, we'll be concerned about that potentially and be watching them closely. I can't hear. Um, you. No, go ahead. Um, right. So, um, Adam, the gentleman who asked the question, Mark, who's based at Dunstan, they had a deliberate ingestion of cyanide several years ago, mm -hmm. and he's wondering if do you need to hold both the uh, antidotes, the cyanide kit and the sodium thiosulfate? Okay. No, I don't think you need to hold both. Um, they're both efficacious treatments. The hydroxycobalamin is sort of, if you ask you know, most toxicologists across the world, they'll say that it's it's got a better side effect profile because it just becomes vitamin B12 once it binds cyanide. Um, and so um, it's, it's um, preferred for that reason. It's got a little bit better harm profile or adverse effect profile compared to sodium thiosulfate. But but as far as efficacy, um, it works probably just as well. We don't really have head-to-head -head comparison trials, so I can't say that with a you know evidence base. But as far as the best of our knowledge, the efficacy of sodium thiosulfate is still sufficient to be a treatment. Um, it might not be quite as fast as hydroxycobalamin, um, but at the same time, you know, I think if you're going to hold at least one of those, it, you'd be in a, a you'd be ready to treat somebody. So. Thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, venomous creatures was a quick question. So uh, it's New Zealand's pretty fortunate. Uh, you know, we've got catapos um, on the beaches, potentially redback spiders. There's like one or two clusters of those. I think there's one near Alexandra um, and maybe somewhere else. Uh, I've heard about one redback spider bite from Alexandra that got envenomated. But they're both the same species of, or, or same family, right? It's the Latrodectus family. Um, and they can cause a very uncomfortable sort of toxidrome, um, and that's due to, to um, neurotransmitter release that's kind of um, so severe pain and, and stuff like that. But it, people don't, you're not going to die from this. And so it's analgesia and time, um, which is hard when you're in severe pain for maybe several days. But that's, that's what the envenomation profile is. And then there's theoretically sea snakes, um, more, more so in the far north than other places. We did have one, I've only had one call about a sea snake where it was dead, washed up ashore, but the, the bite's still intact, the reflex. And so somebody was bitten, but not envenomated um, from some oh, sea snake that had washed up ashore. Um, so that's not really much of a threat hazard either. Um, I, I guess it's not impossible. And then of course, there's the imported snake on a boat or a plane that could potentially happen too. But um, but for for in uh, for in, uh, in endemic species, we it's not like Australia. There's no uh, naturally occurring snake or or spider here where we need immobilization or pressure bandages or tourniquets. Um, that's very different than the the really lethal stuff that they have uh, across the ditch. But here we don't need to worry about those kinds of things. Yes, one of the great perks of living in New Zealand. We walk all barefoot, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> And then quickly on serotonin syndrome. Um, so serotonin syndrome is uh, probably, I like 
serotonin toxicity better because it is this big spectrum. And what we read about in papers of serotonin syndrome is probably the, just the, the most severe manifestation where they're having, you know, hyperthermia, autonomic instability, um, and are very, very sick. Um, but, you know, the milder end where they're just hyperreflexic and a little agitated and sweaty, that's serotonin toxicity, but the dose as it goes up um, is just going to get more significant. So just to, to differentiate between neuroleptic malignant syndrome and serotonin syndrome, there's a few kind of key differences. The most important one is the exposure substances, right? You need to have the right substances. Neuroleptic malignant syndrome is from, you know, antipsychotics or, or dopamine antagonists. You can also see a very similar clinical picture from people that are on dopamine agonists, like your Parkinson's patients. If they stop suddenly or lose access to their agonist, they can develop a picture that looks very much like neuroleptic malignant syndrome um, from just the, the abrupt cessation of that. Whereas serotonin toxicity, you want to have the serotonin agonist sort of drugs, which are a wide variety. Serotonin toxicity is usually much more abrupt and onset over hours, um, whereas it's more of an indolent course with NMS. Um, and serotonin toxicity also goes away faster because it's related to the drugs that are present. And as the drugs are eliminated, the toxicity is going to eliminate as well. Um, and then clinically, the biggest kind of differentiating factors is that this video here, I'll play it. Um, serotonin toxicity is hyperreflexia in clonus. So you can see the sustained clonus of the ankle there with dorsiflexion. Um, this is not spontaneous clonus which can also be observed where people are just in bed and their legs are just going like that. But inducible sustained clonus is a good indication. People with NMS don't have that. People with NMS are more lead pipe-like. They're very rigid and it's hard to move their extremities. Um, so, and then another differentiating kind of point would be shivering and, and diaphoresis, which you see with serotonin toxicity, but not so much with um, NMS. Um, for serotonin toxicity, we have some really big red flag drugs that are in use in New Zealand. Um, the biggest ones probably being tranylcypromine and meclobamide, which are MAOIs, monoamine oxidase inhibitors. I actually just had a death um, a couple weeks ago from a tranylcypromine um, uh, ingestion. It's, it's a little unclear uh, what the full exposure history was, but this was a young guy who was prescribed tranylcypromine for depression and he was prescribed a high daily dose, um, higher than what, you know, most guidelines would be recommending. And one of the problems with the MAOIs is that they're very susceptible to interactions with other drugs. Um, and so he had that as his baseline. He, I don't know what his other exposure history is other than what was reported to me by the intensivist. But when I was called, the poor patient was near death. He had a temp of 41.3. He was in DIC um, and he was basically, he died later that afternoon. Um, and so, you know, it's unfortunate that, um, you know, these drugs are, are, it's definitely not a first, second, maybe it's a third line drug for depression at this point. Mm. Um, but you just got to be careful with those because there's a lot of interactions with them too. And then venlafaxine is another sort of red flag drug in New Zealand. All venlafaxine in New Zealand is extended release. And venlafaxine um, is another one that's prone for serotonin toxicity. And also because of that extended release, it also has an association with delayed onset seizures. So these are seizures that happen more than 12 hours after ingestion. And so a venlafaxine overdose needs 24 hours of observation because there are several cases um, that will end up having seizures after those 12 hours. And they can look okay and not really have much of any symptoms until you know later on. So, so Serotonin toxicity is a clinical diagnosis, 
the drug history is key. And just to make a point, it's a long list of drugs. Um, and so even things like opioids have serotonin activity. Another drug that's in use quite a bit here in New Zealand is tramadol. Tramadol has a lot of serotonin agonists. And so if you had somebody that's on an SSRI and they're also prescribed tramadol, um, you know, if you see somebody like that, you know, check their reflexes. They're probably going to be brisk, if nothing else. Um, and then it, a few extra doses of one or the other potentially could trigger, or if you had a third agent in there. Um, and if you had somebody that was just on an MAOI and they get prescribed tramadol, that's a bad interaction too. And, and that's where these sort of cases can, can present as well um, if, if the drug interactions aren't considered fully. Um, but lots of things, stimulants, you know, or if they're, they're on an SSRI, they go use some MDMA on the weekend, they could end up having significant serotonin toxicity too. Just real brief on beta blocker, calcium channel blocker toxicity. Um, so toxicology is one of their favorite topics, but very high risk, <laughs> um, can be very refractory to treatment. So the, the sort of risk priority is uh, verapamil is the most dangerous, diltiazem, then propranolol, and then you've got your amlodipines and nifedipines and then the other beta blockers. But at a sufficient dose, any of them can be very dangerous. Um, definitely requires an ICU level of care. Um, you need long observation periods for those controlled release or extended release drugs because, you know, it might be six or eight hours before you really start to see the significant effects. Um, there, high dose insulin therapy or that Hyatt there refers to hyperinsulinemia, euglycemia therapy. So that's giving very big doses. It's a one unit per kg bolus. You're bolusing 70 to 100 units of insulin IV and then running an infusion at 0.5 to 1 to 10 units per kg per hour. Um, what that does, it, it works like an, uh, an inotrope. It's a very good inotrope. It can be used, but it doesn't have to be used. And so I, uh, especially in emergency medicine, we get a lot of people thinking that the first thing they need to do when somebody shows up with a beta blocker overdose is start insulin. And that's not the case. Um, it's, an, it's another option in our toolkit. Um, you can manage these patients very successfully with traditional vasopressors. Um, and so my approach is we, if you find something that's working, you keep going with it. If we have a patient that's refractory to, and we're trying noradrenaline and we put on vasopressin and we look at their heart with the ultrasound, our, our point of care ultrasound shows that their contractility is very poor. That's a patient that is in cardiogenic shock or at least it's contributing to it. They might be somebody that is good to use high dose insulin in. Um, but that I've, what I've pictured here is just our, we have a little one page protocol that I email out to people if they might need it that walks through the steps because High-dose insulin therapy, as you can imagine, is prone to a lot of um, adverse effects. So obviously hypoglycemia, sometimes people need to be on D50 uh, infusions, 50% uh, dextrose infusions to control that, and also hypokalemia. They get volume overloaded pretty easily, um, and it's, it's a complicated therapy, but it can be one that can be life-saving if, if they really do need it. And then, of course, the other thing to consider with uh, severe beta blocker, calcium channel blocker cases is whether or not ECMO might be used um, because they're a good, if they're, if they're in cardiogenic shock, ECMO is really good for that. If they're vasoplegic shock, ECMO is not very good for that. Um, unfortunately, there's, vasoplegia is just a really tough um, uh, clinical condition to manage. Um, but if the people with severe calcium channel blocker, beta blocker toxicity, 
they can be salvaged, right? So the drug will eliminate. If we can support them and prevent secondary organ injury from the hypoperfusion, eventually the drug will go away. So it's a fully reversible condition and they can reverse with intact function as long as we can prevent those other organ injuries from, from occurring. I've just got two hmm. questions. Um, where do we provide ECMO in New Zealand currently? Only in Auckland. So they have a retrieval service. It's at the CVICU in Auckland. Um, and they have capacity. I don't know how many people they can have on at once, but they do have capacity to retrieve theoretically from anywhere in the country. Um, and so I can't think of a poisoning case that we've done it, but theoretically the option is there. The, the tricky part is what do we do, you know, when people aren't that sick yet? Because <laughs> usually ECMO is once they're kind of refractory to medical interventions is when you'd start to think like, okay, we, now this person, the only thing we have left to offer them is ECMO. Um, and so um, you know, getting these people from smaller centers to bigger ICUs is usually the right thing. If you have a risk assessment that says there's a big dose here, well, if you need to be ready to get really aggressive, you're going to want to transfer them earlier rather than later, um, if that's what the risk assessment sort of suggests. And did you use the term vasoplegia? Yeah. So vasoplegia is just um, basically your systemic vascular resistance is like zero. Right. Yeah. So instead of instead of it being a cardiac pump issue, it's your SVR, your systemic vascular resistance, that is um, the problem. And so ECMO can replace the pump, but it can't replace the peripheral kind of squeeze and vascular tone. Um, and so vasoplegia is um, a good place to look for stuff on that is like the cardiothoracic literature because they, they see it a lot in cardiothoracic surgery and then tox literature. We see it quite a bit through drugs like this, too. Awesome. Thank you. Um, and then I think the last one here, carbon monoxide was was touched upon and obviously can come up. Um, and I'm really sympathetic for people that are, you know, working in areas where you don't have co-oximetry because co-oximetry is how you diagnose this, right? Um, or how you confirm the diagnosis at least. So that's measuring specifically carboxyhemoglobin. Um, and you need co-oximetry to do that. Um, and so, you know, otherwise your clinical signs and symptoms are nonspecific, right? Headache, nausea, dizziness, um, shortness of breath. And then if they collapse, you know, it's the exposure scenario. So that's the history in the right, you know, if they, they built a fire indoors because they're to treat, to prevent them from being too cold or something like that, or they're running a gas powered generator inside, something like that could lead to carbon monoxide poisoning. Um, but, but I think the helpful things maybe in an environment where you don't have ready access to coaximetry is knowing sort of the clearance times. Um, so carboxyhemoglobin on room air has a clearance time of four to five hours. That's a half-life. So if you start with a level of 40%, in five hours time, you'll be at 20%. So if you have somebody that's showing up 24 hours later um, and, you know, you're probably not going to, they're, they're going to have a normal carboxyhemoglobin at that time point, um, provided they don't have ongoing exposure. Um, and then the treatment is oxygen. And what oxygen does is it helps you eliminate carboxyhemoglobin faster. So on a 100% non-rebreather mask, um, you'll have a half-life of about 90 minutes. And then hyperbaric oxygen treatment, where you put people in a dive chamber and take them down in pressurized uh, environment and have them breathe 100% oxygen, that could be as little as 20 to 30 minutes for the half-life. Um, but uh, one thing that I always like, so hyperbaric oxygen has not been proven to uh, improve clinically meaningful outcomes. And so... Um, there are hyperbaric chambers that can be accessible 24-7. Christchurch has a big chamber. 
uh, up in Auckland. I think it's in Auckland. There might be other centers in, I think maybe Wellington as well, but I'm not 100% sure on Wellington. But if people ask me, I say, well, you can talk to those hyperbaric doctors if you, if you want to, but my interpretation of the literature is that this stuff doesn't offer. I always say, since I, I'm, not, uh, uh, I'm not convinced by it, but I say you can talk to the hyperbaric guys if you'd like. Um, but most of the time, we're not emergency diving people for uh, carbon monoxide poisoning. Um, and then one of the scary things with carbon monoxide poisoning is this risk of what we call delayed neurologic sequelae. And so that can be anything from headaches to full-on neuro deficits. People can have dementia or focal neuro deficits um, in any variety of, of types. And so there's no good prediction tool for who's going to develop that. But we do think the risk is higher if they have a loss of consciousness or coma, or if they present with a focal neurologic deficit. And the onset of these things can be up to 40 days after the exposure. Mm -hmm. So pretty interesting. We don't understand yeah. it very well, but... Uh, are there any other questions about carbon? I'm a little over time, sorry. No, you do a great job. Don't yeah. apologize. Anyone got oh. any questions? No, great. Right. So then just wrapping up, um, take home message are one, poisoning is harm from exposure to a substance. Two, the dose makes the poison. Three, a well-informed risk assessment is really what you need to dictate optimal care and start your management. And then you can call us at the Poison Center anytime for help managing your patients. Um, and with that, I'll leave you with my email address and happy to take any other questions. I just want to say, Adam, um, whenever I put out an email asking for questions, I generally get no response. <laughs> and I got heaps of questions. So this was obviously an area that people had an, an unmet need of talking to someone and getting some information. So I really appreciate that. And I'm sure that has answered all of those questions that people sent in, of which a number are in this room. Um, and on behalf of the team, I'd just like to thank you very, very much. Oh, yes. Um, the paracetamol ALT question that we started at the beginning. Thanks, Sophie. Yeah, so the question is, why do we recommend now to get an ALT at the end? Um, so, yep. so the acute pathway is you put them on NAC. NAC is a 20-hour treatment course towards the end of the infusion, hour or two before. The reason we want to make sure that we check the, the, the tests at that time is to, to identify, again, it's going to be a very small number, but to identify people that might need more than 20 hours of treatment. So um, it, because it takes 12, 16 hours for the ALT to start to go up, um, there's a chance that you could have somebody that is starting to develop signs of a liver injury um, when towards the end of that infusion. And we've, it's Australian data mainly that kind of first identified this because they were seeing a lot of large ingestions in, in Australia. And we're seeing more and more of that in, in New Zealand as well. And a large ingestion would be like 30 grams or more. And that's kind of an arbitrary definition. But if it's more than 30 grams, the, the whole history of NAC, NAC, the dosing of NAC is entirely arbitrary. Literally, the story of the original dosing of NAC, it was Barry Rumack, who the nomogram is named after, and some other, I forget the other guy, were sitting in a bar at a meeting thinking about how much glutathione is in a liver. And they made a few calculations on a napkin, and that is where the dose of NAC came from. It has not been derived more scientifically than that, and that's kind of what we started with in the 80s, and it's been there ever since. And so the IV form, that was the original oral dose, and then IV was sort of approximating that. But there's a lot of work being done these days on NAC dosing, um, and so 
there's a group of patients, especially it was those patients with bigger doses of, of paracetamol that would develop liver injuries despite being treated with NAC. And so that, that follow-up test is supposed to check the paracetamol to make sure it's all gone because if there's still paracetamol present, they should probably get some more antidote till it's all gone. And then two, to identify, albeit we don't know how small, but a small number of people that are starting to develop signs of liver injury. So that's why those tests are there as that sort of repeat to make sure that it's safe to stop NAC. Brilliant. So um, say if your NAC's supposed to finish at 3 a.m. in the morning and you can't get a blood test then, do you continue through until you can get your repeat ALT? Or is it okay to stop and then get the ALT in the morning? What would you recommend in that situation? What I'd recommend is, is calling so that we could discuss the specific case because there'll be a lot of factors beyond, you know, I'd want to know like, how much was the supposed ingestion? What was the initial value? Things like that. Who's the patient? Is there any reason to think that they might be glutathione depleted from the, the get go? Um, so there's, so my recommendation, let's have a conversation at three in the morning and we can decide what the best thing is to do. Um, and if you want to call at three, that's fine. Uh, um, I'm, I'm, I've been told I'm pretty nice even at three o'clock. Um, you're you're a glutton for punishment, aren't you, Adam? Well, I mean, this is what we're this is what we're there for. But we can also talk in advance, and so um, you know, it's nice if we can. But but you know, you'd want to have individually kind of to every and I, paracetamol. While I said we get sixteen hundred calls, I think like four hundred of those are about paracetamol every year. So I get plenty of opportunities, and I've seen every kind of variation under the sun about a paracetamol question. Um, but uh, but yeah, it really would depend on the if if they showed up at four hours and they had a serum paracetamol of twelve hundred and they're a normally fit and healthy person, you know that's probably one that you're going to be okay. It's going to be really unlikely unless there's some other factor or complicating thing in there. But if they showed up in their initial pair, they showed up maybe at twelve hours or eight hours. Their initial level was high. You know those there's very different reasons for for thinking that it could be a different sort of case. And until we get better evidence, this is kind of the state of, of um, where we are. Um, but I think that the risk of, I think the risk of people going on and you know having significant outcomes is is probably pretty low. But we just don't have the data at this point to know who the at risk people are. Brilliant. Thank you. Any other questions? Um, well. Yes, absolutely. It's um, now quarter past 10. So Sorry. thank you very, very much for your time on a Sunday morning. We My really pleasure. appreciate it. And um, I 100% sense that you're very open to us contacting you. And um, we really, really do appreciate that. So thank you, Adam. Yeah, thanks for and having me. Have a good day.